Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today, it won't be a hot mic day, <laughs> at least for the whole show. Uh, I have a guest. I am really honored to have uh, this sister come on. Um, her name is Artanese Myrick. And uh, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects which is chicago uh flip side is we're going to be talking about uh the part that has really tainted the image of the city and that's the gun violence that's been going on but uh this sister is one of the people fighting to change that narrative and uh their her organization live free illinois um is pushing for a city office, a permanent city office to deal with uh, gun violence prevention. And so we're, we're going to be talking about that. Um, and if live free sounds familiar, uh, remember Michael McBride, Pastor McBride, we had him on and Pastor McBride is part of the national organization we live free. And he's based out of Oakland, California. And like I said, they have chapters throughout the country and probably one of their more important ones is uh, the one based in Chicago, Live Free, Illinois. So Ardenese leads Live Free Chicago organizing work. She has experience in police accountability and reimagining new systems that reduce the footprint of policing. Prior to LFI, Ardenese was a justice diversion coordinator serving individuals who had low inf law enforcement interaction and identifying their needs. Ardenese has a master's degree in social work from the University of Illinois. She is an adjunct professor for U of I Urbana, or Urbana, as we probably say in Chicago. In addition to her professional experience, Ardenese and her family have been directly impacted by police violence, incarceration, and gun violence. She is committed to building power to transform systems. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast, Miss Artanese Myrick. All right. Artanese Myrick, how you doing, sister? You doing good? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing lovely. Uh, I am I am honored to have you on, um, especially concerning this particular subject. Um, I grew up in Auburn Gresham in, in Chicago. And when I grew up there, it was a nice working class neighborhood. I mean, it was just, you know, typical you know, folks kind of looked out for each other. Uh, we even, I played in Little League. We used to have a parade, you know, down 79th Street and all that stuff, opening day. I mean, just block parties, the whole nine, you know, just kind of like what you would expect growing up in an inner city community that was uh, tightly knit, I guess, for lack of a better term. But now, as a as an old man, <laughs> I read in the newspapers that my 
and on the internet as well that my zip code that I grew up in, 60620, is now the most dangerous zip code in the United States. So from your professional assessment, why do you think in those 40 years, because I left in 1983 so to, to go to college. So from 1983 to 2023, what has happened in that community for it to go from a solid working class black neighborhood to the most dangerous zip code in America? Um, I think like Auburn Gresham and also other communities and throughout Chicago, everyone's dealing with the remnants of divestment. I think that we need to be able to pour into communities. And from the last the last couple of decades, right, you could see some neighborhoods being built up you could see more neighborhoods being divested from, right? I think even in those same zip codes, you're looking at places where you have to drive 10 or so more minutes to get to a local grocery store. You have to drive to get adequate healthcare and also like after school programming, good daycares, things of that nature. We're divesting from the neighborhoods who are already vulnerable. And so I think those are the differences that we have seen the last couple of years is that um, neighborhoods hardest hit by gun violence are being divested from. And that safety gap is becoming wider. Like neighborhoods like Lincoln Park are becoming more safe. But yet again, they have access to at least three to five grocery stores within a three minute walk, right? And I think that attests to what people are in. People are in, in those zip codes are looking at survival. And when you have to survive by almost any means mes- necessary, then you're going to look at people um, really trying to their best to be able to fill in those gaps themselves. And I think that's what's happening in those neighborhoods. We need to, we need to stop divesting and we need to invest in and pour into real people. Yeah. And, and I had uh, Michael McBride on the show and, and Michael is affiliated with live free at the national level. And he was saying the same thing about divestment that, uh, when you don't put resources in the community uh, that it creates this form of desperation. And when people have talked about that in the past, you know, they just kind of dismiss it, especially when we get into these political arguments, right? Uh, Because they say that, well, the, the, the problem with black people as a, you know, opposed to white people, what they say about us, is that we're violent in nature. Every every law that is passed is a lot of times, especially early on in the history of this nation, was based on what they perceive were behaviors of Black people. So your organization, you personally, Michael, all the other folks, me included, are making the argument that it's not our nature to be criminal. But the environment that many of us have to live in creates these kind of uh, actions for lack of a better term. I'd I'd agree a hundred percent. When you look at neighborhoods who have good healthcare, great education systems, access to experiential enrichment for youth, 
and for the older adults and people my age who are 28 and up still trying to figure things out, you see programming and you see services that are readily available in those neighborhoods. But what you also don't see is high rates of violence. You also don't see tons of police zooming up and down the blocks. And if there are things happening with police, you actually do get to see them through. Our neighborhoods don't. And so saying that to say that neighborhoods who have everything to produce uh, a healthy lifestyle for those residents in those areas, you don't see over-policing, you don't see high rates of violence, which to me is obviously a, we should look at, well, what do these communities need? And let's put it there. Because like you said, that that desperation can bring about all the things that we're already seeing. But if we keep throwing money past the people who really need them, then we're going to continue to see the things that we see if we continue to divest from people. Speaking about money, um, <laughs> in, in doing the research for this, um, I found out that the Chicago Police Department has a $1.9 billion budget. $1.9 billion. So to put that in perspective, when I served in, in the Mississippi legislature, the highest state budget we had was $10 billion for the whole state. Now, the state of Mississippi's population is about equal to Chicago's, if not less, because Mississippi has about 3 million plus, and Chicago is about, what, 5 million now or close to? Um, so that's that's perspective. But two, nearly $2 billion dollars. And yet, only 45% of the homicides have been solved. And this was based off 2020 numbers, right? The 2020 numbers say 45% of all homicides were solved. And last year, the city of Chicago had, well, according to, I'm sorry, not last year, 2021, 745 homicides took place. So you're spending two billion, nearly $2 billion. You're only solving less than half the cases. And the homicide rate is going up. Um, if this was a committee, if, this, if I was on a committee that had to review the city of Chicago Police Department, I would have a lot of questions. What, what you being on the ground, what is going on where the police has all these resources, all this money, and crimes are not being solved? Um, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%, right? We should be looking at where is this money going? How is this money being allocated? I think the first part is that it's not being, we need to think about reallocation. We can't keep pouring money. You mentioned the resources. I think we're putting resources in the wrong places. When the city of Chicago can do a $40 million budget on shot spotter, but that's after the fact, after someone's already been shot, after a shot's already gone off. Again, and when they pull up on these shot spotter scenes, again, they're not finding, any, they're not recovering any guns, they're not recovering any um, potential suspects, any of that nature. So again, I think we're putting money in the wrong spaces because that's very responsive. It's very after the fact that it's not helping communities. So how can we put that money onto the front end, right? How can we A, stop the shootings from happening to begin with? And then if we are spending $1.9 billion on policing, I don't think it should be 
for police officers to be social workers, to be mental health counselors, coffee with the cop, all of that stuff, I think can be used towards maybe hiring more detectives to actually investigate the cases and see them through. Maybe this can be put towards hiring more civilians who actually live in these neighborhoods rather than putting most of this money towards law enforcement over time, right? And so like, how do we start looking at the way that we're spending this money and actually make the money work for us? Uh, again, in some neighborhoods in Chicago, the clearance rate and the rate in which law enforcement officers are, are, are solving cases is as low as 6%. And when we're thinking about that number, we have to start looking at, again, how are we interacting with those families who are impacted? Because regardless or not, people still need resources. Maybe that res those resources could be put more towards victim services, right? Maybe some of those law enforcement um community spaces are put towards totally building that law enforcement trust, right? Because that's what we hear when we hear about clearance rates. We hear that, well, the community doesn't want to speak up. The community doesn't want to talk. That very well may be true, which with historically, I understand. However, we still should be able to have allocation of money to make sure that those things go smoother. Right. Um, the uh, CPD received 89 recommendations in the PERF report. I've also heard that under 5% of the consent decree has actually been enacted through the, the CPD. How are we looking at the things that we know that we can handle and actually go towards that? Again, if we, we need to solve homicides. And again, I think you made a good point. I come from a social work background. If social workers or service care agencies aren't providing the adequate services that are needed, what usually happens? That funding is cut. Those programs are no longer there. And then I've also dealt with community where it's like, well, where is this program? What happened to it? And people are still looking for these services. And so I think we should be looking at it that at, from that type of standpoint, right? You can't bring home bad grades, right? And expect to still get greater incentives while not bringing out the outcomes that are needed. And if we're talking about Chicago, that's the most, that's the thing you hear most. Although, there are a lot of great things happening in the city of Chicago. What you do hear about is those crime narratives, but you also need to know about what's happening behind the crime narrative. What happens if someone is taken into custody over a homicide? And what is that through process that families are dealing with? How are families being interacted with in that process? And again, families aren't seeing the good return on that 1.9 billion. <laughs> they're not feeling like they're being handled with care during these conversations. So I think this is a, this again, clearance rates is a, a, is a great space for us to be looking at how can we reallocate and invest into communities on the front end rather than policing strategies that haven't worked and are also after the fact. Right. And, you know, when, um, you know, during the election cycles, you know, people were being critical about folks saying, well, we need to defund the police and defunding the police probably was not the best slogan, but it's, it's sexier than saying we need real allocation. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Which is really yeah. what the people were talking about. We need to reallocate the resources. One of the suggestions that you, that your organization has been promoting is an office of gun violence prevention. Now, for what I understand, the city of Chicago or well, before I get into that, you mentioned something about the perp report for folks outside of the Chicago news cycle. What exactly is the perp report and what is that supposed to have done? 
Absolutely. So the PERP report um, is filled with recommendations that um, from the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and which is really the Police Executive Research Forum. That's what PERF stands for. But it's backed by the federal government through the Bureau of Justice Assistance. And so the, the PERF report has given 80, 89 recommendations to that CPD can actually put in action to solve homicides, to increase um, community trust, all of these different things. But due to lack of transparency, it's, unclo- it's unclear on how many of these proposed um, suggestions and changes have been enacted. And so the PERP report really spells out how do we look at detectives? How do we look at increasing civilians? How do we look at the number of police and patrol officers to the population and to what's happening and really put through a thorough plan to ensure that we got these things covered? Okay. Thank you for that. Now, Going into uh, what y'all are proposing. So currently, the mayor, through an executive order, has created this Office of Violence Reduction. And, uh, you know, it just some of the things they were talking about uh, was like street outreach. They said the mayor's Office of Violence Reduction prioritizes street outreach and violence interruption services which are often considered secondary prevention or quote unquote in the thick strategies to reach people who may be at increased risk for involvement in violence. And then they further define street outreach as actively working in quote unquote, the streets to engage individuals who are at immediate or high risk of being either victims or perpetrators of violence. Now, the executive order has been given by a mayor who just lost in the primary. So she will not, this is mayor Lightfoot. So she will not be the mayor for the next four years. Uh, Y'all are basically trying to put something permanent in place. That'll extend beyond the remainder of her term. And, you know, as long as there's a need to deal with this issue, is that correct? Absolutely. Um, I think you just named exactly why we would need to create an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. A, we need something permanent. B, political priorities of different administrations make it hard for us to see the long-term effects of an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. So currently, the office being through executive order allows that to be wiped away with a stroke of a pen. And so we want the city to actually put in the infrastructure an office of gun violence prevention that will oversee um, all of, and, and actually just streamline all of the services for violence prevention in all of the neighborhoods in the city of Chicago to be able to get access, to help people get access to what they need through violence prevention funds. Because right now it's kind of targeting like 13 communities, including Arbor and Gresham. Um, you know, Inglewood is basically right next door. And, um, you know, I, I just, I just remember Derek Rose when he signed his Adidas contract, I think that very day, two people in Inglewood, two young men had been killed and he was emotionally distraught. He couldn't even focus on what he had achieved because of the pain he was feeling. And that's a lot of us in Chicago or Chicago natives, even not being there when we see that, you know, we just can only imagine if we had to grow up in that kind of kind of situation, how emotional we would be. But anyway, um, y'all are y'all are pushing for an ordinance, 
And I think the primary sponsor is uh, Alderman Sawyer out of the sixth ward, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I didn't see my uh, David Moore's name on here, but I don't even know if Moore is still in the, on the council or not, but he used to represent a lot of that area in Auburn Gresham. Um, he's not one of the five or four sponsors, but anyway, that's, his politics to deal with. Let me, so uh, you want to do this and you want to have an appropriation of about a hundred million dollars. Is that correct? Absolutely. So what would, what would that hundred million dollars look like? Cause if I'm a, first of all, he changed the name. You're saying it's um, in your, in your uh, white sheets, when you're putting out information, you're saying the Office of Gun Violence Prevention in the in the uh, actual ordinance, it says the establishment of Neighborhood Safety and Office of Neighborhood Safety Advisory Commission. And this is going before the Committee on Public Safety and the uh, Chicago City Council. Um, so one, he's already kind of changed the name because there's going to be some people like, oh, I don't know if I want to vote for something that says gun violence prevention on an office, you know, it's a stigma and all that. And then the yeah. other argument you're going to hear legislatively is, dude, we're spending $2 billion already on the police. Now we're going to spend $100 million for this? Justify why that $100 million would be a better, better investment than what is currently happening. Yes. So I think this gives us a real shot at healing communities, right? So when healing communities, we need mental health and trauma services. Um, We also need to be able to fund those services adequately. If we're looking at high rates of gun violence coming from the pandemic, we're also looking at a, a wall because we're also dealing with service agencies who are also overwhelmed, who are also dealing with the high rates of violence. So we need to be able to make sure that we can give mental health and trauma services adequately and make sure that we're um, also um, taking care of those service walkers correctly in, the, in those positions. Secondly, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention has had high turnover. So we want to make sure that this, this office is adequately funded to keep the people there and sustain the people. Secondly, or thirdly, um, you're dealing with community organizations on the ground who are doing great work. And with this office, we want it to have procurement powers. We want it to be able to re-grant to the grassroots organizations on the ground who are actually touching people. So for example, I know Sean Childs, he works at a River City Church and he has an organization called House of Hope, No Kids Die in the Shy. Every week, he does a program for youth on Chicago's West Sides. He does beauty bars so that young women can feel great about themselves. He does haircuts. He does um, a fun day programming. And he does all of this out of his pocket and in donations. And so people like him who he's touching the youth, he's touching the communities hardest hit by gun violence. How can we help to regrant to him without him having to deal with the bureaucratic red tape of having to fill out grants? that would not be able, that that would make it harder for him, right? Or when we talk about grants that need, um, and they're asking for capacity to keep reporting, all these different things that make it harder for people who are just already on the streets doing this because they care. And so we want this office to be able to do that as well. There's also a victim services component. 
the there was a situation in Chicago where someone witnessed um, a murder happen and was being targeted and they needed to leave quickly and they weren't able to do so because right now as it stands the city says yeah we can help you uh, relocate or get funds but you have to be able to upfront that cost first I don't know about anyone else but if I had to uplift uproot myself today I could not do that, right? And and that's a lot for a person to do that while also dealing with the turmoil of of the violence that's already happening. So ha- so this office would say, hey, we we can do that. We can help with that. We can provide more victim um, services that are readily available for those who need it. Another portion of this is um, being able to just ensure that this can be adequately ran and sustained. If we don't make sure that the office is sustained, it's going to happen like every other office. It happened for a couple of years. No one really utilized it. We need to, we can keep it pushing. But with this office, we need to make sure that it's funded first on the front end so that we can make sure that all the different measures are in place so we can make sure we can um, save lives. Have any of the two, because whoever wins the Democratic runoff is going to be the mayor in Chicago. So, have any of the two guys, Via Lobos or, and I guess I'm saying his name right, and uh, Johnson, uh, either one of them made any kind of commitment to uh, uh, support this proposal? Yes. So Brandon Johnson has already put in his public safety plan that he wants to create an Office of Gun Violence Prevention that will work with the current Office of Violence Reduction. He's also um, worked with our faith coalition in saying that he wants to uplift this. And he was interested in saying, how can he learn more? How can he better advocate for this? And so Brandon Johnson has already outwardly expressed his, uh, his support through his public safety plan. We do have a chance to speak with um, candidate Vallis as well to see where he stands. Oh, okay, see, I just added all sorts of syllables name Vallis. And I shouldn't know this guy because he was over to public schools at one time, right? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Vallis. Yeah, okay. All right. Sorry about that <laughs> for y'all Chicago folks that may be voting for this guy. Anyway, um, let's um, let's play devil's advocate for a minute. All right? So um, part of the job of this agency would be to be a flow-through, right? To kind of like if Kellogg Foundation wanted to give money to deal with this situation or any numerous Robert Wood Johnson, anybody that would, anybody that want to give money, uh, they could give to this organization and then this organization will target different groups and all that stuff. Uh, why, why is it better that a government agency is doing that as opposed to the organizations themselves being able to just say, Hey, look, we need money to do these projects. Because I think the city needs to be coordinated with everyone who's doing the work. Right. Um, I think, our city needs to be tapped in to what people are doing on the ground. And we need to be able to streamline these services. Um, I think I briefly mentioned before, like regardless and contrary to what the Monday night news tells you, there are a lot of great things happening on the ground in Chicago. There are a lot of good people who are out there touching community like Sean Childs, like Jasmine James with the trauma zone. But because of that, we need the city to know about that. So if someone was going to go to the city and say, hey, I need these services, they can point to someone in Auburn Gresham. They can point to someone in Austin. They can point to someone in Roseland. They can point to someone 
in um, Morgan Park. And so how the, the, we want city and community co-governance and we want this to work simultaneously together because I think oftentimes what happens is the city or city agencies, they put things together saying, we're doing this in name of community, but community isn't in on that conversation and things end up happening to community. And so with this, we're looking to say, have these conversations in tandem with community alongside community or with com actually what we're looking for is community leadership that will be able to happen um, through these conversations. And that way we're working together. We're not working in silos and we're actually um, able to uh, cross coordinate what's happening all across this large, beautiful city, um, and that the in the city of Chicago actually knows what's going on. I think, for instance, I can give you the CSCC. The CSCC has been doing a lot of great work, a lot of great work. But a, a lot of our aldermen don't know about it. They couldn't even tell you what the acronym means. And people should know about the great work that's happening. So should community. But we should be able to point to one place and say, hey, this is where we can get all of this good stuff and be able to, A, disseminate that information out to people, but that actually people can actually get a warm handoff to the people that are giving the services that, so that they can actually use them and utilize them as they wish. So the other devil's advocate point is this. The city of Chicago is about... Well, it's right on the border with the state of Indiana. And Chicago has some of the most restrictive gun laws in the nation as far as personal ownership. Indiana is 180 degrees the opposite of that. Uh, and and, and, and being somebody that has lived in Mississippi for a long time, growing up, I know the Chicago-Mississippi connection. And... I'm sure guns are running up 55 and 57 into Chicago, just as long as just as well as they're coming across the Skyway and I-94. How can an organization like this mitigate? Oh, and then and then the other thing that's always out there, the urban myth, is that well, you know, they just had these 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 box cars full of guns, like sitting in the railroad yard, and they leave them in our communities. What do you think we're going to do with them? I, and of course, my argument has always been, nobody told you to go into boxcars and get the guns, right? Nobody told you to do that. But, you know, I guess the temptation is too great. But between that urban myth about the boxcars full of guns over in the south and west side of Chicago railroad tracks and the actual reality of guns coming in from states that don't have these restrictions that Chicago has, how can an organization or even an office of gun violence prevention mitigate those, those instances? I think that's being very much aware of the interstate commerce that Illinois is dealing with, right? I think Chicago or Illinois is recovering, is the eighth state to, to recover the most guns throughout the United States. Like we know that they're gonna end up coming here. So I think that's us, A, working with people across the state to make sure we give prevention services out there, but also working on, let's, let's look at this Midwest gun trafficking and let's build relationships with our legislators and the people who are gonna be making decisions on guns. So that way, when things do come up, we already have something in place. How are we even looking at the gun shops and the way that they're even able to administer these guns as well, right? I think, like you said, Indiana's a jump hop skip away 
from the city of Chicago and, and other cities, right? And so how are we uh, really building those connections to those other states to say, hey, we are, we're working on the Office of Gun Violence Prevention here. How can we partner in legislation to make sure that people are covered? Because I think another portion of it is when you look at um, these communities that are hardest hit by gun violence, it's a no-brainer that they, they're also impoverished communities. It's a no-brainer that they're also communities that were, were uh, that have the highest mass incarceration. So how can we start looking at policy that is shaping these conditions for people to live in the way they do? And I think that there is a great opportunity for us to work as a Midwest region on our surrounding states to mitigate um, guns coming into our state as best as possible. And I think that's a policy thing. And it takes for us as, a, as an organization like mine to organize people who really care about how guns are coming into our neighborhoods to organize and talk with legislators to make that happen. And we, we're also a, a, a national, part of a national organization. We do have people in faith in Indiana. So I think it's, it's, it's a matter of us building those relationships and bringing up these conversations to say, hey, we do care about how these guns are getting in the state. We don't, we, we, we don't only care about just preventing them, but we know that the reality is that they're coming. So how can we begin to mitigate that so we can save lives? Right. And you had mentioned faith. I assume Father Flager is involved. I just, I mean, St. Sabina was literally right around the corner from where I grew up. So I know he's been doing a lot of work and I believe he's involved with what y'all are doing. Um, so if other people want to be involved in what you are doing, um, as far as either pushing this ordinance through or just overall the work that you're doing, how can people get in touch Absolutely. I'm going to give you all a take action today. If possible, please call your alderman, even if their alderman is, is one of those aldermen who are up to leave. We still want to be able to talk and influence people who can help this decision be made. And it should be made to save communities. So, A, call your alderman and ask them to talk about to support the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Reach out to us on our website. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Live Free Illinois. And you can also find us as Live Free Chicago. You can also go on our website, which is livefreeillinois.org. Illinois is spelled out entirely. And you can go to our staff page. You'll see my email there. You can reach out to anyone on our team. And we'll make sure that you're supported and connected to everything that you need for the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. And if nothing else, we have a petition on our Take Action page, on uh, Take Action um web page on our website and that you can just simply sign a petition that will send a letter to your alderman asking them to support this this office of gun violence prevention and so just please reach out we have plenty of um just opportunities we're even doing text-a-thons where we can text people and call people to talk about the ordinance while also talking to people about getting out the vote because again we need to work with what all administrations to get this pushed through so that we can permanently have an office that's fully funded. Well, let me just say this. Um, I, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, I still have family, friends. Uh, you know, I have friends that are either still with the CPD or retiring. My dad worked for the CPD for a moment. Um, you know, but I have a lot of family and friends that are still in Chicago. And uh, I, 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 I hate to be asked, well, 
you know, was it was it violent like that when you grew up and all that kind of stuff? Chicago is an incredible city. I, I don't think I could have been the person I am if I didn't grow up in Chicago. And I just want young people in Chicago now to have the experience that I had. Um, and so I appreciate you and others like you that are doing the work. And I am honored that you came to talk about some of your work uh, on this podcast. Thank you so much for your work and just uplifting the narrative for us to give, to have violence prevention be centered the way it is. I think that's another big portion is that there's not enough of spaces for us to tell our real stories. And so the narratives they get written for us. And so I am just super appreciative of your platform and you helping to uplift community voice about the things that matter. So thank you as well. And thank you for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Ardenese Myrick with Live Free Illinois. And we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So, you know, I as I stated in an interview, and many of you know, because many of you that listen to the podcast live in Chicago um, or still have connections with the city. Um, and I know most of you, if not all of you, have the same affinity for Chicago that I have. Um. The time that we grew up in Chicago, uh, from 1965 to 83, and I'll throw in 85, so we'll just make it 20 years. Those 20 years were the best times to be black in Chicago. And I know there's some people like, well, you know, look, you know, it was like we were the focal point. You know, when people talked about the movie Cooley High or people watching the show Good Times, we knew where that was. We had connections with that area, that school. You know, uh, even though our teams, our sports teams were winning championships, we had incredible players during that time, legendary people, um, you know, that 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 either were ending their careers or starting their careers during that period of time. But I mean, just the whole cultural vibe of Chicago and being black in Chicago, we went from a generation that was basically, we were the first ones born under the new voting rights act, right? To by the time we were 18 voting for the first black man to be mayor of Chicago. I mean, it was just, (laughs) It was just different. It was just a different feel, whether you were in Brown, Bronzeville or Auburn Gresham or Inglewood or, you know, on the West Side, whatever, man. I mean, South Shore. I mean, it was just it was just cool to be from Chicago. We took pride in being from Chicago and especially being a black person in Chicago. It, it just it did. I mean, Soul Train started in Chicago in our in our generation. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was just it was just a different vibe. We remember Don Grenier's doing the news on WVON. You feel me? I mean, that was 
it was just it was just a different vibe. And so whenever we hear uh, those of us who don't live there anymore, and I'm sure the people that still live there, when you hear on the news and you're dealing with all the crime and you see all this stuff going on and you just wonder what happened, right? So I'm glad there's people like Arnie's Myrick. I'm glad there's uh, that brother that um, Dion is doing the food service. Um, and the people that she mentioned um, doing work in the community, the people that were praying every week just for the violence to stop. You know, I, I mentioned Father Flager. And I mean, you know, and there, there's, I mean, there have been people in Chicago throughout all this that have been fighting the good fight. Uh, you know, I, I've got friends that have served in the legislature and in the city council there, Burnett and Colvin, all these guys. You know, we, we used to, I mean, you know, it was it was always that, that there were people always in the mix trying to, to move Chicago forward and keep it from getting to the place where it is um, in the public perception. So, you know, despite what you may say, if you've never been there, you hear Chicago is one of the greatest cities in America, if not the greatest. I mean, New York could probably make a claim. <laughs> LA will do their best. Uh, but Chicago is Chicago. And if there's a place where we really need to reestablish the value of black life, it's there. Because it's it was it was a heck of a place to grow up. But anyway, I mean, you know, we dealt with stuff because we black folks. We dealt with stuff, but it wasn't to the magnitude like this. Whereas like a hopelessness or a disregard. And I just, I can't even fathom that, right? Um, you know, and, and despite all the new age stuff about New York and Atlanta and whatever, Chicago is still revered, especially among black people, especially among black people in the South. Uh, you know, so... Uh, I wish I wish Miss Myrick and her organization live for Illinois well. You you've got the information how to get in touch with them. Please do so if you're uh, uh, engaged. If you're in the Chicago area, please convince your alderman, especially if you found out your alderman or alderwoman is on the committee for public safety. They make sure they take up this ordinance and get it passed before the new city administration and council get sworn in. Anyway, um, I wanted to commend, we, we had a victory, black people, and it was a very small one, very, very minute, kind of had to look for it, but it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of where we are. And, and what we have to do and, and what kind of cachet we have to use in order to prevail against this last attempt to keep white supremacy as the philosophy of the land. 
and and to deal with the new fascism that's happening and all this stuff, right? And and you do know that their world is crumbling around them. Um, I was gonna play the clip of the woman uh, who was um, on a on a on a talk show, and the question was asked, "Define woke," and she couldn't define it. But I think most of y'all have heard it, right? And so, I mean, that's kind of where we are. Um, these people are are fighting against something. They can't really tell you what they're fighting against. And that's just, that's just real. I mean, there's polls out saying that uh, we understand that saying that I'm woke is supposed to be an insult, but I understand woke means that I'm progressive. So I'm, I'm not taking it as insult. Right. Uh, you know, but it's victories are happening. And there's one particular victory I'm, I'm trying to highlight. And it's dealing with a Florida. And it's dealing with this House Bill 999, which really should be 666 <laughs> based on what it's trying to do. But it, the spirit of 999 is to basically get rid of any organization on a college campus that is not white folks affiliated. And if there's some Republican, including the sponsor of the bill, whoever that wants to challenge that, well, you know, let me know. We'll give you we'll give you airtime to talk about it. But from what I understand, because it's like a 23 page bill. Jesus. I, I Yeah, I like reading bills. I like paying attention to the legislative stuff, you know, but I mean, you know, I haven't. I used to get paid to do that. Now I don't. <laughs> and uh, so it was a little tedious, but it's 23 pages long. And basically it's, 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 it's saying that they're trying to get rid of these organizations that promote, uh, that claim to promote diversity, but really are being divisive. That's the interpretation I got. And, um, you know, and a lot of these organizations have sponsors, the faculty members are sponsors. And so it's basically saying that if you're a sponsor of any one of these organizations that they deem not worthy, um, you know, because of its wokeness, then your tenure can be stripped. And it's encouraging the board of governors, you know, that deal with higher education to, strip your tenure if you're involved with these organizations or you continue to be involved with these organizations after the law is passed. Right? So what happened was the Divine Nine showed up at the state capitol. At least the Divine Nine from Florida A&M University. Since they're right there in Tallahassee. And most of y'all that listen to podcasts know what it is, but for those few people who don't, the divine nine means the nine 
his nine black fraternities and sororities. There's five black male fraternities and four black female sororities. It's the divine nine. The oldest is Alpha Phi Alpha. The youngest is Iota Phi Beta, right? So uh, members of those organizations showed up at the state capitol to challenge a provision in the bill that they felt targeted them. And they spoke to the committee that was handling the bill, including, and the chair of the committee was the sponsor of the bill. And after each one of them spoke and engaged in debate with the, the, the sponsor and other members of the committee, and they were, of course, saying, yeah, that's not really the intention. We weren't really going after you all, per se. Uh, they agreed to take that provision that impacted the fraternities and the sororities, the Divine Nine, out of the bill. That's a victory. In, in, in the legislative process, though, however, they have to still be vigilant because, first of all, the legislature is still in session. <laughs> so uh, any until the session is officially over, even though that provision has been taken out in committee, somebody can put it back in on the floor. If it's not put in back on the floor, it can be put back in of the originating house. It can be put back in in the the house that it goes to for you know concurrence. And if that bill is altered any sort of way, then it will go to conference. At least that's the way we did it in Mississippi. I don't know if I assume Florida and other legislators are pretty similar, but they'll they'll go to conference and it could be stuck in in conference and. You know, the conference process is not the most open process to the public. So stuff that you think is out of a bill could be put back in. Right. And then, you know, and then the governor either signs it or vetoes it once it's, you know, passes both houses. Everybody agrees on the language. Right. So. It's a victory, but we've got to, I'm asking those organizations and other black folks in Florida, and I'm sure Sister Rainer Goolsby and, and uh, forget Sh Brother Sherwin's last name in the Senate, but he'll, 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 they'll keep everybody aware of where it is and what's going on. Um, you know, and the, and the Florida Black Caucus, for that matter. Uh, they'll stay on top of it. Um, but you know, you need to stay on top of it too because once you get them to commit to getting out, see the only cachet, the only, only thing of value to legislators is their word. And once they get to the point where you can't trust their word, that they, they renege on promises, then they're are no earthly good at all, none. And, you know, they may fool their constituents get back in, but amongst their colleagues, they're not. Then they you can't. They can't stand on the word. They're they're worthless. They're irrelevant, right? So you know, if they've taken it out, then they've given their word that it's out. 
but you got to stay focused because in this world, especially in a world where you want to please somebody like a Ron DeSantis for their personal political ambition, their presidential ambition, thinking, I guess, you're going to get some kind of favor from that. You got to watch it. But for right now, it's a victory. And it's an example, right? It was it was convenient for them because those that school is in the state capitol. State capitol was in Miami. Well, hopefully, maybe the Bethune Cookman Divine Nine would have taken the lead on it, or you know, those members of the Divine Nine at Florida International, or or the U University of Miami, right? But since the capital was in Tallahassee, uh, you know, and the, and the Florida State Black Student Union and other groups are involved in that too because they're still impacted by the legislation. They didn't they didn't get exempted, <laughs> just the fraternities and sororities did. So they're there in Tallahassee fighting, along with the FAMU students. So, you know. That was fortunate. You know, if something happened in Jackson, Mississippi, the Jackson State University students are right there, right? And I'm sure they're in their face about all this stuff that's going on right now, student organizations and so on, uh, because there's a real strong connection between Jackson State University and black elected officials, you know, especially when it pertains to Jackson. Um, so, you know, if, if there are HBCUs near state capitals, you've got a, 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 a group, a support group there that can really deal with a lot of those issues. I mean, Little Rock has Philander Smith, for example, you know, just, yeah, and, and Jackson also has Tugel College, right? But I mean... You've got you've got them in certain places, Montgomery. You got Alabama State, you know, those kind of things. And of course, you got the Atlanta University Center here in Atlanta, Georgia, right? You you've you've got some pockets like that, but there are some states that don't have the historically black colleges by their state capital, like Sacramento, for example, in California. Not that it seems like California is a problem. But I'm just making a point, right? There's no HBCUs by Sacramento. Not that I know of. So, you know, that's when community folks have to engage and be uh, aware of what's going on. Now, in some of those states, they're not doing crazy stuff like that. But in other states like Kansas and Florida, they are. Uh, you know, North Dakota and Iowa wouldn't get away with stuff. South Dakota wouldn't get away with stuff because they're basically fighting white people that either support indigenous people or the few black people that are there. <laughs> you know, they're not really, they don't really have those dynamics like Illinois or New York or any place like that. 
or even the South. But I, I, I wanted to highlight what the Divine Nine chapters from FAMU did because it's an example of what we can do. All we have to do is stay vigilant and stay organized. Um, and, and, and bring in and, and, and build coalitions. One of the things that bothers me about what I am seeing in some places, especially now that I'm here in Atlanta, is coalitions are good for political campaigns, but that's really it. You know, the people that are protesting the cop city in Atlanta and those of y'all who haven't been following, uh, the city of Atlanta wants to build a brand new public safety training facility, uh, but they're going to basically tear down uh, or clear out a major watershed forest in order to do it. The neighbors are lukewarm about it. The environmentalists are up in arms about it. There's been clashes, yada, yada, yada. And this whole concept of this training facility was in response to the summer of 2020, that they needed to build a better facility that better trained officers so no incidents like George Floyd or anything else will happen again, right, in Atlanta. facilities are not human minds, but that's a whole nother debate, right? But anyway, uh, but, you know, those folks are kind of fighting that battle on their own, right? And you got folks that are dealing with housing issues and they're kind of doing that on their own. And you got folks that are dealing with legislative issues and legal stuff and they're kind of doing that on their own. And there's no real coalition of minds, at least not publicly known, right? That's really working collaboratively to make some things happen in Atlanta, the home of Martin Luther King and Maynard Jackson, right? It's, it's not happening. And people talk about Jackson, Mississippi, but when I left Jackson, Mississippi, there were coalitions, you know, now I don't know if the coalitions have fractured, but they were there when I left. You know, and you know, and in, in in Mississippi, more so than maybe in Atlanta, it's Jackson, Mississippi. You have to kind of have to coalition because you don't really have money to throw at a problem, as you do here in Atlanta. Uh, they ain't relying on social media uh, well they are they do social media but it's not like they're not advertising for money you know paying advertising for tv and all this stuff they they just getting out in the street and doing the work in jackson atlanta it's kind of more of a show it is what it is i mean people can say i'm wrong about that that's fine i, I just make observations based on what i observe and my experience in dealing with building coalitions and all that, I just I just don't see it. If it's there, 
great. But usually when coalitions are built, there's some impact. <laughs> Something happens, you know. And I think coalitions in Atlanta are more politically centered. You know, we want a particular candidate elected and all that stuff. But then after that, it's just kind of like, you know, when it comes to issues, everybody stays in their silo, in their lane. And there's no real connection. I think people know each other. I think leaders of different organizations know each other. But as far as a real big grassroots network to get certain things done and really address the problems, I don't see it. And that could be, you know, and I'm not picking on Atlanta, but I live here, right? I live in the area, the metro area. So, yeah, you know, I mean, they could be having the same problem in New York. They could be having the same problem in Baltimore. They could be having the same problem in Seattle. You know, I don't know because I don't live there. But I'm just observing what I observe here. And I've lived in Jackson, Mississippi, and I've lived in Chicago. So I'm just making observations. I mean, it could be having a problem in Houston. As far as coalition building, I don't know. But if you are having a problem, let me say this to you. Stop. Stop having the problem and start building the coalition. Because the only way we're going to defeat this white supremacist mindset that's really on life support, that's really on his last gasp. Last gasp. Let me articulate that so people understand. We have to we have to have effective coalitions in every state. Not just in Florida where we see fascism on steroids. Not just in Mississippi where we see the hoods are going marching back in, right? Trying to divide up the city that doesn't want to be divided. They're trying to create a separate white section of Jackson and make it its own thing. And the white folks are not complaining. The white folks don't want to be separated. Nonetheless, we, we see it in Charlotte and Charleston and Birmingham. And we're seeing it every Montgomery and, and Little Rock and, Austin and everywhere else there's a state capital. There are people in state legislatures trying to maintain the last bit. Even in the United States Congress where we have members of Congress saying, hey, maybe maybe instead of just caving in, we just separate again, you know, like we did in the 1860s, right? That's how desperate they are. Their leaders are, you know, Ron, Ron DeSantis, to his credit, hasn't done anything where he's under criminal investigation, but some of his people, like Matt Gates and others are, right? And then I don't know if Matt Gates is really with him or with Trump, but I, I don't know. I think Matt's for Matt because he's one of them rich kids. You know, with Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, and, and, and 
Bobert in Colorado and all these other folks are into this mindset about separate and unequal, right? They want to live in a state where the government, the only thing that the government controls is the people. It dictates to them how they live, how they worship, what they can read, what they can watch on TV, what they can do with their bodies, who they can love. That's what they want. And the rest of us just want a society where it's like, we want to be left alone. (laughs) We want to be able to make money legally the best way we can to provide for our families. We want to like enjoy stuff like movies and ball games and music and all that stuff. No. And we won't, don't want to be discriminated against. The only thing we agree on is do we really have to pay that much in taxes? That's the only thing we agree on. Other than that, seems to be a major divide. But the only way that you can defeat those forces and really finish the job of taking them out, and when I say take them out, I mean the philosophy, right? I'm not trying to advocate people dying, although they don't seem to have a problem with any of us dying, right? And just look at their policies. If, but if we can end, if we can terminate white supremacy as a thought process in the United States, how, you know, when, when Reagan and Kennedy and all these guys were talking about city, using the biblical illusion about the city on the hill that shines brightly for the world, on a United States without white supremacy as its driving force would make us that city on the hill. That's that's how it's going to happen. You know, we got to be a, a world power in spite of that. But if we really want to be above everybody else and really be able to be an example, right? Because... As long as we have white supremacy, we really can't tell Netanyahu to stop messing with the Palestinians. If we still advocate for white supremacy, then we really can't wholeheartedly support Ukraine against Putin. Although we're trying. But you've got elements because of that mentality, you know. You know, if we, if we, don't get rid of white supremacy. How hard it is, is it for us to really tell China, despite the fact about the financial setup we got going on, to leave Taiwan alone? You know how hard it was for us to get the government of South Africa to consider divesting? They weren't paying attention to us. They didn't care about us divesting because they got the model of apartheid from us. First with the natives, the indigenous people, and then with black folk. They got the idea from us. So as long as we still have vestiges of white supremacy and embedded in our institutions, embedded in our education system, it's hard for us to really be the example that everybody wants us to be or perceives us to be.
And the only way we can defeat that is that we have to build coalitions. We have to fight together. We have to organize together. We have to do that. If we don't, then we keep giving white supremacy hope. We keep giving them legitimacy. And there's no need for that. In the 21st century of human existence, or at least human existence since Christ walked the earth, We need to, you know, we need to end white supremacy. The United States of America, even pre, during the colonial days, right, pre, pre-country, you know, we've, we've had this practice. We've created a legal system. We've done all these things. It's, you know, it's time for it to end. But we can't do it separately. We can't do it individually. We have to be part of a big coalition. We have to have a commitment. And there are folks that are going to put their head down and say, well, you know, it doesn't impact me. Yes, it does. If you are not white in America, white supremacy impacts you. No matter how far, I don't care if you're playing in the National Football League. I don't care if you're, you know, a multi-million dollar music artist. I don't care if you're a rocket scientist at NASA. I don't, whatever you do in life, at some point in time, white supremacy has has made some kind of impact on you. If you have been in America your whole time. And even if you haven't been, right? Because it's not just an American phenomenon anymore, unfortunately. But you you got to get out of denial. Code switching, imposter syndrome, whatever. Get out of denial. It's real. And the only way you're going to stop that reality is that you got to build a coalition with your brothers and sisters. And end it. Period. Period. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. If you really are black and Republican and you really want to have a say-so in America, end white supremacy. Don't sign off on it. End it. Don't pat it on the back when they does something good for you. End it. It's, it's time. And I salute the young people in Florida at FAMU that showed us the way. Until next time.